This is a tale of life and death, of darkness and of light, of confronting the crimes of the past and desperate ploys for a better tomorrow. This is a journey into film noir conducted by two hard-boiled enthusiasts excavating the passions, vices, and obsessions from the celluloid dirt. Noir is a genre born from the darkness of the 20th century. It rises from the long shadow of fascism, often told by those who had witnessed its horrors firsthand. The earliest foundations can be seen in silent cinema, in the German Expressionism movement that swept the Weimar Republic of the 1920s. These films feature a stark play of light and shadow, chiaroscuro, and the lines of good and evil were sketched with similar verve. And by the 30s, many of these German auteurs had fled the specter rising in their country and put down roots in Hollywood. Joseph von Sternberg, Billy Wilder, Fritz Lang. The 1930s saw notable precursors in the dime store crime fiction of Dashiell Hammett, James M. Kane, and Raymond Chandler. It also saw the introduction of the Hayes Code in 1934, an attempt to stamp out the more radical flourishes that had come to define early Hollywood cinema. Then came the war. The fascist horrors known so intimately by those who fled the German film industry were on full display. In the cinemas, violence bloomed. The Hayes Code could not contain the emerging genre of crime and strife in pursuit of the American dream. Far later, after the genre's glory days and post-war years, French critics would pin upon the title Film Noir. But what is Film Noir? How did it come to be? What hallmarks defined it? And what has its long global afterlife looked like? These are some of the things on our mind as we dig into the celluloid dirt. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. I'd like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. It was his story against mine, but of course I told my story better. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cellular Dirt. My name is Fred Belzer, and uh, you just heard the uh, wonderful intonations of my co-host. Uh, that would be me, Tristan Johnson. And together, we're going to be hosting this little show called Celluloid Dirt. Distinct possibility that nobody's listening to this, but that's okay. We're just doing this as a way for two friends who love movies and especially love noir to get together, watch some things that we've seen and haven't seen before, and talk about them. Exactly. Fred and I have, have known each other for... Uh, 10, 10 years now? 10 years. Uh, 10 years, yeah, as of October. As of October 2011, which is shortly after we both moved to Chicago, which is certainly a great noir city. And we both bonded very early on about film in general. Uh, and I suppose given a little bit of, uh, of our, our personal background, how we, how we got there, how we, how we met, and how our interests took us in this direction is in order. Yeah, I'm a writer. I'm still here in Chicago. Do fiction, screenwriting plays, variety of things. Also, I just watch a lot of movies, especially I love just tossing on a, some, a noir film. And, and, you know, some people like to watch The Great British Break Off. And I just like watching good old fashioned 1940s, 1940s noir. It's, it's a great way to relax. 
I spent a lot of time thinking about writing and reading and watching and figured I might as well blather on about it out loud. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. How about you, Tristan? Well, I, I am now looking forward to Noir Week on Bake Off. That that would be <laughs> that sounds delightful. As long as we don't get some some horrifying Paul Hollywood skit to kick it off. <laughs> but for my background, I kind of come from a rather theatrical background. My my parents own a costume theatrical supply shop in in Michigan, so I've just kind of grown up with all things melodramatic around me. And I went to Michigan State University with a major in film studies. And kind of solidified my my love of cinema through college years, watching watching many many films on uh, back either through the library or through Netflix's uh, DVD. Uh, yes, in the pre-streaming uh, days. Pre-streaming days, yes. Uh, and, uh, and and that's really where my my love of noir took hold. Uh, I I had a particularly memorable college course in in film noir and its global global impact and uh and and that sealed the deal uh then moved to chicago in 2011 uh and um and had uh of course met fred but also worked with him uh on a production company that we had started uh with a few other friends uh and and have since found my way to new orleans uh where where i currently live it is another great noir city uh and uh and and i am a manager of a distillery uh and uh, and i also write on the side when i'm not watching movies or other other entertainment yeah yeah i'd say we're both people who uh enjoy creative expression and are always looking for outlets for it um around our day jobs and life and responsibilities and all that and so this is sort of a way for us to do something and put it out there. Uh, the great thing about podcasts is, you know, you just talk into a microphone and act like you know something and, uh, and then you're done and maybe watch a couple of movies <laughs> too. What, what, what could be better? Yeah. And, uh, and so we're just gonna, uh, we're, we're going to explore the roots of noir, uh, the, the aftermath of the genre, uh, some favorites that we have. Um, we're going to dive into it, uh, pick it apart, bounce it off each other and uh and just try to have a little fun doing it uh, and at, at your early mention of your your film noir course i think it's a great segue into our our next thing on the workflow here of uh our earliest introductions to the genre so if you just like to elaborate on on how you became introduced to noir and how you came to love it i guess i have to I have to call out a fairly early movie watching memory for me which is just sitting on my my parents living room floor and and watching the Maltese Falcon uh and I I don't know what I I'm pretty sure I actually requested to rent it and I probably was eight or nine at the time uh but but that is a movie that's kind of uh that that through uh through pop culture just has already already kind of gets ingrained in you uh before you even know what it is uh, there's, you know, movies like that, like Casablanca, Maltese Falcon, that that uh, Citizen Kane, that you just start to absorb things from even before you've ever seen them. Uh, and and so when when the Maltese Falcon, when when I first saw it, it it felt familiar to a degree, and and even to a young movie watcher who had uh, had so so little context for what a noir was or even what detective fiction was um it it 
stood out uh, pretty memorably in my mind. And I don't think I watched it again until I was in college. Uh, it was a hard thing to shake. I, I always, I just kind of had a love for detective fiction, for whodunits. Um, and a lot of it was more um, a, a year spent reading Agatha Christie books and, and other other detective stories like that. Uh, but I, I also, at an early age, came upon... Uh, came upon uh the wonderful uh d- detective parody film that is that has not aged super well uh murder by death which checks <laughs> which, which checks off um all all literary detectives on its list uh but i loved that i also love clue sure. and they kind of pair well together and um and so uh, I don't know. I think those are some of the formative influences for me before I ever became a serious movie watcher. On my end, I, I originally was at one thing planned and I was thinking about it some more and I realized uh, I definitely I had some of the same, you know, my dad was a big Turner Classic movie fan. And so that was just constantly playing in the background when I was a kid. So I'm sure I, I watched or saw or kind of glanced at a lot of stuff while I was playing with Legos or whatever. But actual earliest thing I can really remember is The Thin Man. Like, yeah, that, I think was one where my dad was like, you'll enjoy this because, you know, it's funny. And and so he, we, that was something we watched. I don't know, maybe I was like 10 or 12. And that's really my first pointed taste of noir. And then part two came uh, when I was in high school and uh, I watched Cowboy Bebop for the first time, <laughs> which, you know, at the time was playing on Adult Swim. So you had to stay up until midnight in order to watch it. Which I was not allowed to do. I might have even been in middle school, but the my I, just, I have a very distinct memory of staying at my my aunt's house, and we had only the one TV when I was growing up. But uh, she had several TVs and variety of rooms, including the room that I was sleeping in on a on a mat on like a fold out couch or something. So I was just up late watching whatever I could, and turned it to Adult Swim and watched this. And I was already into anime, but I watched we were watching Cowboy Bebop, and it, I watched the final two episodes, like the end of the show. And and despite not having context for what was going on, I was just like, this is incredible. And I just, the, the, the cool that was just radiating off of it. I was like, this is everything I could want in the story. And then some, um, it does do that better than, but better than almost any other pop culture object I can think of. It's uh, it remains to this day, one of my, one of my all time favorites of anything ever. And finally, the last kind of component for me was, uh, was actually through, you know, a little after that was when I really started getting into Raymond Chandler and Dexter Hammett. And that was also around the time that I got exposed to Bolaño, uh, the South American writer who kind of, mixes in noir with his uh magical realism uh in books like savage detective and 2666 um which just had a huge impact on me so yeah so then i had like a really strong foundation from the literary roots uh by the time that i came back around to all those turner classic movies that my dad had watched um in my 20s and was like oh yeah, these are awesome. I, I love this. And it's uh, been a steady habit ever since. I, I, I should note that uh, that one of the first books you ever recommended to me was Savage Detectives, and it is uh, one of the um, great works of fiction of my lifetime. It's, it's incredible. If you haven't read it, highly recommend it. 2066 is uh, an overwhelming obelisk of... Uh, <laughs> uh depression and cruelty uh, in humanity but um also just stunning i confess i've started 2666 but have not 
I, it's one of those those books that if you put down, you are not just picking back up where you left. No, it uh, it is bleak and it grinds you down. But uh, if yeah. you stick with it, it is uh, monumental. So yeah, so that's sort of my my story and history with uh, Novar. And uh, yeah, ever since I've just sort of been whenever they pop up on TCM or now on the Criterion Channel or Filmstruck when we had that, um, you know, I just try to dig in and, and watch what I can. And I, I guess that's that's very much our foundation. And and I, as alluded to earlier, where I really came into my own with the genre was just actually taking a course with it and opening my mind a bit to what I, I'd been watching, you know, a handful of older movies of of. Um, ones from the classic days, also things like Chinatown, and I've been consuming those on my own. Uh, but but in taking a course that really pushed the the global connection to noir, it it started to shift my mind into how this genre, this defunct genre, has still rippled through uh, through all of all of cinema, and and it's and it's weird because it's not just like it's not just like a musical or a Western where, where we can talk about them as one continuous genre that has evolved, but there is with noir, there is a, a pocket of it that, that exists in this period of the 1940s and slightly into the fifties. Um, and, and at some point, not a, not a fine cutoff date, but at some point it just stops to be as it, as it was. Uh, and 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 there is neo-noir and there are spins on noir that take it in different directions there are other genres that owe heavily to it but but what how did it come to be why does it not exist as it did anymore um why isn't it like a a musical or western in that regard what sets it so apart from other genres and maybe what does it have in common with other genres i think these are fun questions to ask and pick apart as we as we talk more of and uh, and explore this for sure. I mean, so I think it's uh, as we've been doing our our own kind of reading and research in prep for this. I feel like every single piece inevitably has some variation on the sense of like the one consistency amongst noir fans is that nobody can agree what noir is. And it's like ah, yeah, yeah it's, you know. I mean, there's some core pieces that are very definitely noir, but then there's appropriately there's a lot of gray uh, in terms of what is or is not and what fits the definition and who you talk to. And so uh, for those of you who are on Letterboxd, uh, we've got an account on there. There's a celluloid dirt master list of noir and neo-noir that's been pulled from a bunch of different sources. I really just mass download upload kind of deal um, that we're drawing from for putting together what we're going to be watching and discussing. But there's some weird stuff in there that as we go through it, we're like, why did somebody put this on a noir list uh, a lot of westerns that pulled into the noir context uh you know i'm looking at it right now innocence somebody put in there and i'm oh, like that 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 yeah that, uh does not sit it's black and white but i don't know why you yeah i guess if you took out the ghost element and it you're just sort of talking about the terrible groundsman and how he was corrupting people like that there is a very long connecting thread that you can kind of draw back to noir if the pieces are rearranged but still it's the innocence and it's like that's not but somebody somewhere thought it was and 
now it's on this list that we're pulling from. So um, a lot to discuss and that I, I'm really looking forward to. And I think it's going to be uh, as fun, if not more so, when, when we disagree as when we agree. Uh, it's easy to praise the classics, and it's a lot more interesting to, to kind of talk about the, the more hidden, hidden gems and or uneven but beloved lesser known titles. And I guess for the for the sake of of defining it, of finding those those um, cornerstones so that people can um, can ground themselves here, let's talk about some favorites of the genre, like where where both of classic noir, but also when we think of when we think of either the roots of noir, we think of uh, of neo noir and where it's gone today. Uh, what key films jump out to you, Fred? I mean, in terms of the classics, definitely the Chandler and Hammett adaptations, right? So the Big Sleep and the Maltese, Maltese Falcon, and then later the Long Goodbye uh, as sort of a, another mile marker as and I think a good turning point into neo-noir, um, Chinatown in the more modern sense. Uh, I think the serial killer has kind of become a big venue, a, a major venue for some of the noir trappings that you've seen in the past. So, you know, I think like Memories of Murder and Zodiac are really interesting evolutions. And you, I could I could so totally buy the argument that they're not necessarily even neo-noir, but I think that there is uh, there is still a, th- uh, a through line from the 1940s. And, you know, I think like you could go from M to high and low to uh, Memories of Murder to Zodiac. And that is a pretty consistent idea of of a, a crime procedural you, you absolutely absolutely can and i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned m because that that's that for me is such a pivotal film in in kicking off uh it, it is it's not a noir in the in the traditional sense uh but it feels like such an important precursor to it not not the least of which because it uh was directed by fritz long who um is certainly one of the most multi-talented directors to ever have existed to me he produces uh m is a, a contender for my favorite film of his it may just it may well be but but um in the mid 50s he's responsible for what is is certainly up there for me in the finest entries in noir which is the big heat that's another great one um you know i think associate some of the ones i skipped over uh double indemnity uh sunset boulevard um postman always rings twice uh you know i think this is more the side that you can see the cohen's drawing from right like that um oh yeah like more so i think than obviously chandler and hammett plays into lebowski but i feel like a lot of their other you know blood simple and uh fargo and uh what was the other one just the, and uh, the man who wasn't, man there, wasn't there all those feel much more tied to that side of noir where it's not so much about you know crime and punishment so much as it is about people with big ambitions and poor planning skills in and the trouble that they get themselves into as a result uh which is also a really fun strand even through detour is another uh great one from that era that's sort of engaging the same kind of stuff and yeah i didn't mention earlier but i think the the coen brothers definitely are a major influence on the modern noir moment hugely absolutely yeah. There's a there's a whole sub genre of neo noirs that are essentially like 
Blood Simple and Fargo riffs. There's always a couple that get made every year that have a handful of like recognizable actors in them. They get to have a juicy role, but they're pretty cheap to make because you shoot them in rural America. And so I, I think definitely you can feel the the influence of, of especially Blood Simple on the last 30 to 40 years of, of neo noir. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that the Coen brothers, by by working so much comedy in, which is a, a not something you associate with the genre, but you you do associate a, a pulpiness to to it all and um and so there is a a sense that a lot of this is a, a little bit ridiculous and overblown and and that translates so well in Fargo and especially in Lebowski it's not noir as we knew it but it carries forward a little bit of of that pulp sensibility pulp's a hard thing to sum up uh, it's a hard thing to consciously try to recreate for sure no i think that's actually a really interesting point and maybe gets back to the earlier question of of why noir faded away and i think there is while while it is uh stories of people who are who are doing bad things for bad reasons it's still kind of an earnest subgenre or earnest genre right like even the cynical ones play their melodrama straight whereas modern audiences especially post irony it's a lot tougher to sell that the elements that make the originals work and I think that's obviously evolves even within the within the time span that noir exists. It go, going from something early in the 40s like Maltese Falcon and moving up into the mid 50s when you have something like Kiss Me Deadly, which turns a lot of that pulp up to the extreme. And then like watching how that can manifest itself in, in the different spins that have, have developed. But it is, it, there is a certain... Even though you can see the noir influence in something like the procedural genre, it does feel like it's missing so much of that particular spark mm-hmm. that that comes into it. For sure, for sure. Um, you know, just like my list here, another one that I love that I think can be pointed to as as sort of uh, another branch in the new noir family is uh, Blue Velvet. And I think sort of the movement away from plot and into more horror, psychological horror, and mixing that in with the detective, but the detective who is encountering the unknowable rather than solving a crime. I feel like you can start with Blue Velvet kind of, and a lot of Lynch's work leads you in the direction then of like some J-horror, right? Like Cure in the Ring, where it's like people investigating things but you're no longer investigating a traditional crime. You're investigating something that is beyond comprehension. I wonder, because Lynch is also so pivotal in in that, but but when you see people that are imitating the Coens or imitating Lynch or imitating Tarantino, they're often taking the wrong lessons. Oh my God, Tarantino, we didn't even get into like the- Not even get Tarantino. But obviously we got to talk about the 90s- yeah, the and and and, uh, and Tarantino pulls direct from from Kiss Me Deadly when when he sets up the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, and uh, and and he's he's so aware of it. But I think all of these all, all of these auteurs who are in turn very aware of the classic genres and they're coming from people who are 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 massive movie fans themselves uh, that are that are um, immersed in what came before them. Then people start imitating Tarantino and and the Coens and and even more brazenly trying to imitate Lynch, Which, and and the effect is not the same. You're just diluting 
uh, you you can sometimes hit some of the same highs, but but it just feels like a, a simulation of a simulation to me. Yeah, no, that '90s uh, neo noir crime thriller, uh, you know, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, One Two Punch, and then uh, just the spate of like Boondock Saints and the way the gun and all these you know nonlinear talk heavy but they can go oh it's a the, it goes down a, a bad rabbit hole quickly actually one 190s um we haven't we haven't talked too much uh, except for lebowski going into the, the skewing heavy into comedy about genre crossovers with noir but the smack in the middle of the 90s i think strange days is a is a wonderful sci-fi noir take that, i have not seen it that, because that, it's that not available so anywhere well it is out oh. of print I was actually waiting for a copy of the DVD from the Chicago Public Library, which is a wonderful library, but uh, it has disappeared and oh, they canceled my hold because no. their one copy is now in absentia, which, you know, so I got to find some other way to, to watch it. Um, oh, I, if I find, if I find any lead, I will let you know, because it is, it, it is um, pretty terrific and, and, and shows how noir can blend really well with other genres. Uh, sure. um, so even though, you know, we can look over our, our massive master list and, and laugh about some of them feeling a little bit far removed. It's not, it's not wild to think that, uh, that a neo-noir is, is going to be able to adapt it into any number of different ways. Let's just quick shout out some other, some other favorites. Cause I mean, you know, this is essentially the whole podcast. So we could just sit here and talk for hours about like, yes. <laughs> Uh, don't worry, it's going to be a little bit more structured once we get into uh, our actual episodes. But for this first intro, we're keeping it a little loose. Uh, let's see, some of the ones that uh, I've really loved, Clute, we didn't talk about. Big fan of the various noirs that came out of Japan from the 40s to the 60s. So like Straight Dog, is, I'm a big fan of. Um, Pale Flower is fantastic. Love Sweet Smell of Success. You know, some recent ones, uh, Uncut Gems, and really blanking on the name of this movie, uh, Nightcrawler, uh, just like unrelenting. Uh, Nightcrawler is definitely great and has held up very well for me. What are some other shout outs that you want to put out there for uh, uh, favorite shot? Yeah, when it comes to the the foundations of noir, I, um, I, I'm a big... I'm a big fan of uh, Joseph von Sternberg and his uh, and his Marlena Dietrich collaborations. And Blue Angel is, is is certainly feels like a very pivotal film in in setting up some key tropes for noir. Um, and I I, uh, I also love uh, Shanghai Express. Uh, uh, M has already mentioned Pandora's Box uh, is uh, another great. Uh, masterpiece of silent cinema uh, and German expressionism uh, in in the noir heyday in the 40s uh, and I think Fred and I have a little bit of uh, of disagreement on this one but I, I do think that the third man uh, is rightly considered one of the, the cornerstones of the genre it's a great movie it has a, a central flaw but the rest of it is so good <laughs> that I, I, I will it is a great movie hands down but there's some stuff that I can't wait to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll. I think it'll be good for us to uh, to to pick that one apart. Uh, I I also love Laura. Uh, that's um, that's one of the the high points of the genre for me, and really um, um, really hones in on uh, on this concept of uh, of of the past and obsession, uh, which is a recurring theme throughout a lot of noir. Uh, Nicholas Ray's in a lonely place, uh, which which brings together 
the uh that perhaps my my two favorite figures in the entire genre humphrey bogart and gloria graham uh and so those are some of my my very favorites uh i i do love long goodbye and in chinatown moving farther forward something like uh le samurai um or or even uh ghost dog way of the samurai uh i think there's i think there's some fun influences further down to uh, to pick apart and how how Kurosawa helped to shape the uh, uh, shape noir into something that also felt distinctly Japanese and and where that where that was taken and the concept of the samurai still having a a, a place within the uh, this neo-noir version that started to develop uh and and I'm sure plenty of others that we we will unearth as we continue uh, digging into this. Yeah, I mean, as again, this is one of those things where I think we could both just keep listing movies, and uh, this podcast would be episode would be four hours long, but we don't want to do that to you. But I, I do also want to. Like, I think something that that brings to mind for me is, you know, I I, I definitely have my blind spots. French New Wave is not one of my strengths, um, and I'm really counting on you, Tristan, to help kind of guide us through that. I'm excited to go exploring. Uh, in it but you know the samurai and uh, breathless and all that i've i've actually never seen so i'm excited to watch for this this podcast well and i think that's a that, that'll be an interesting thing to dig into considering that it is the french who gave us the 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 name film noir mm-hmm. they they very much the the french film critics many of whom founded the french new wave movement are um are are the ones who championed noir as a genre and uh and helped uh helped ensure that it it remained prominent in critical theory for years to come no yeah i'm excited to to finally dig in you know also for me i think i've seen a decent number of of uh both the classics and the hidden gems of the 40s and 50s but there's a lot of them and uh so many there's there's plenty that you've seen that I haven't and vice versa. So I'm excited for both of us to kind of fill in some of the gaps there. I have not seen a lot of Yakuza films. Uh, and I know that that's going to be something we'll tap into at some point, which uh, I'm excited about. So yeah, I don't know. What are some of the, uh, you know, the gaps in your your catalog that you're excited to fill in with this podcast as an excuse? Uh, I, well, I became very aware when when going over our master list of just how many uh, of the classic noir films I I have not seen. The, the list was... Uh, was properly overwhelming, and uh, and, and so uh, as fast, I'm looking to I'm looking to piece that together more. Uh, yeah, as I say, as, as a current count, our our master list has over 2,600 entries in it. Uh, we will not be covering all of those as much as we both love noir. A lot of those are okay, not great. So I think we're we're really interested in talking about the ones that um, are interesting and either are just exemplars of of the genre or even if they're not at least have something worthwhile to discuss you know don't worry we're not going to subject you to a 2600 episode uh podcast we don't have the time (laughs) energy or 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 bandwidth to do that and i'm i'm looking forward to um to to diving into some other genres that draw inspiration uh like uh like anime that i i don't um, I have a few that jump out. I do love Cowboy Bebop. Um, I, uh, I I think there's there's a, a few that I'd be excited to to talk about, but for the most part, I don't know what I don't know, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to watching a few more. I was gonna say, uh, I think it's a good thing to flag too is that um, you know the plan for the main feed is that 
we're going to be focused solely on features, but sometime in the near future, we'll probably launch a Patreon if there are people actually listening to us. And if people start paying, then we might do, uh, our thought is to do a second feed that's focused on TV shows. So we probably dig into more uh, anime there as well as like Breaking Bad and The Wire and just a variety of, of different noir TV shows. I, I would really love to revisit Terriers. Uh, that's one of my one of my favorites. Um, so there's a good chance uh, we'll, we will be tackling TV just in a slightly Twin different Peaks format. The Return. Oh, Twin Peaks. Oh my God. What a what a stunning achievement. I mean, there's somebody. Um, I also uh, I'm also uh, a big Reffin fan. So uh, Only God Forgives, I think, is a unjustly spurned classic, uh, modern classic that we will you talk about at some point. You won't get me uh, fighting you on that. It is, I think it is pretty good. Um, but just to prove my bona fides, I, I loved uh, Too Old to Die Young, uh, his true trash epic. And somebody was like, the um, uh, somebody I think it was on Twitter was like, Twin Peaks: The Return is to uh, Too Old to Die Young is the is the is the gal to the goofus, um, and that you know Twin Peaks: The Return is is like high art, and Too Old to Die Young is just wonderful Euro trash. And I'm like, I'm here for both. They they're fantastic. I, I think we do have to embrace a little bit of trash. One hundred percent. We're we're in the dirt. That's the that's the idea here. Yes, give me Miles Teller as a pedophile cop. He's <laughs> a good guy. I think that this is where, um, and I guess we're starting to get into defining the genre. This is where, when we're talking about neo-noir, that sometimes it can feel too uh, inauthentic, maybe mm-hmm. is the the way to, to put it. I don't need Tarantino riffs to, to slot into the neo-noir category. Uh, but what I do want to see, what I do want to like dig into and talk about are, is blaxploitation, uh, is giallo, mm-hmm. is things that are, that are lower- are considered lower genres by the critical masses, but really have a lot more in common with with the roots of noir because, and I, I wrote down one thing that for me particularly defines noir. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure as this goes along, we're gonna, we're gonna pick this apart and I may change my, my thoughts here, but I, I think that so much of noir is about positioning our hero or our anti-hero against a, a system or a set of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it feels the most authentic when the film itself is almost against the system. Yeah, that's legit. I don't I don't know that I can really uh, argue with that off the top of my head. You know, my feeling on noir is sort of a very broad brush. Is is the like uh, it almost feels like a kind of a Paul Schrader take, but um, you know, movies that are that are truly interested in the corruption of the soul, right? Like movies yeah. that that put their protagonist uh, in a position and, and or either put their, posi- their protagonist in a position where they're forced to compromise themselves or are f- forced to confront the compromising of other people and uh, discover that, you know, society is a facade and underneath it, it's, you know, under the rock is just worms and decay. But I, I think you're, I think you're, I think those two ideas are compatible, right? That yeah. like, the, the corruption of the soul is dependent on a some sort of moral framework and so you know that that structure that you're talking about whether it's like concrete like the police or the law or just society or even like heteronormativity you know like there's so many different things that we've uh, have all 
generally agree to that maybe are strangling us a little bit. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and I think that I'm I'm going to really enjoy challenging that notion or mm-hmm. uh, or reframing that notion say when we when we dive into talking about a procedural because because that's that typically involves involves more working within the system whereas for the most part when you're looking at classic noirs you're looking at private investigators not at not at police you're looking at reporters or writers or people that are pulled in from the outside uh, you're looking at criminal syndicates that are their own counter system to the law enforcement to the established order but in in turn have become part of a system themselves you know honestly i had this conversation recently with a couple other um, film people I, I think dragnet is a big reason for the decline of noir you know dragnet as like the original propaganda like the police are here to protect and uphold society and you know the as we were just talking about, like the noirs classically, even within the limits of the Hayes Code, were interested in sort of exploring people who were outside of the law or um, or outright positioning the police as antagonists. Um, and, you know, because, you know, like it used to be the Keystone Cops was like an overriding idea of what the police were like, right? That they were a bunch of corrupt buffoons who were out to protect themselves and the rich, uh, was, was sort of like the societal concept. And then Dragnet comes along and once a week, in, uh, right in your living room, there's this, on one of the three channels that you get, you, there's this uh, constant reminder that the police are your friends. They're here to protect you the nice white people in the suburbs and the city from all of the, uh, you know, negative influences out there in the world. And, um, you know, I, I do actually think that kind of removed a lot of the impetus for, or the feeling of the need for noir where you're like, we no longer as a society necessarily felt like you had to go outside the system in order to, have like to just live and or be successful um and it became combined with you know the rise of the suburbs and most more boom for those that were you know of the mainstream and and considered like the right kind of people i think all of that kind of sapped some of the energy for for noir um I, yeah. I I had not thought about it on those terms, but holy hell, I I think that's a that's a great reading of it, and 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 I think it helps for the the creators of noir to to be coming in with a bit of an anger mm-hmm. toward the toward the system, and that that translates, and and of course there's there's got to be a market for that to take off, but that's why that's why so much. Uh, of the interesting neo-noir is um, is coming from unexpected places sure. moving forward. And every now and then you get a major, a major breakthrough like, um, like Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, but even something like Pulp Fiction is not uh, reservoir dogs are coming from a young filmmaker. That's very much working outside of the typical studio system. Very true. Uh, and yeah, I think even like, you know, Chinatown, right, as one of the key, like, starting points for neo-noir, um, 
combined with like falling by and uh, those are all you know the watergate years where all of a sudden there was again a sense of the systems against you it's no longer necessarily like the cops and again this is coming from a very like white cis straight point of view where if you met the definition of of who is the right kind of person the feeling was the cops were on your side uh obviously for people of color and a variety of other people who who did not meet that that very narrow definition that society had set the cops were never their friends but um in terms of uh, uh, you know hollywood at the time was largely written and directed and by those kinds of white straight dudes who were just like you know cops treat me pretty well they give me a warning when i speed and let me off the hook so you know clearly the problem someplace else like watergate it's the government but the cops again to paint with a very broad stroke as we go through you know we'll find movies in every decade that that buck that trend but i do think that uh, sort of where where the general movie going audience was at that that's a big part of it well one thing we haven't really talked about and this is where i think you when you get some of the the bad noir pastiches because they're taking the wrong wrong lessons from from it uh, but we haven't really talked about the aesthetic uh, yeah let's get and, some specifics of, of uh what what is noir of course it's of course it's in black and white or most most classic noirs are in black and white i think there's a um there, there's a few that that i would say fall squarely into that classic genre like house of bamboo that are in color but um but for the most part these are these are films that that are defined by light and shadow and mm-hmm. because of that it's not enough to merely to merely make a, a film black and white to make it uh, and have it be about crime for it to be noir. There's got to be, the, that's that's just taking the color coding of it and, and applying it in a modern setting. And it doesn't, it doesn't work like that for me uh, or it doesn't make it a good noir. <laughs> right. Sure. Also the femme fatale, right? And the detective, yes. two key archetypes of the genre, but also it's very easy to name a bunch of counterexamples that are definitely noir that don't have either of those things. Um, but, but they are like, again, I think going to what you said about to, to the, pastiche, the pastiche um, of it all. Like, I think those are ones that pop up a lot, you know, thinking about a Prairie Home Companion. Do you remember the, uh, uh, guy, guy, guy noir. noir. Yes, yes, that's actually. I should have listed that as another early. Uh, my dad and I listen to movie all the time, but Guy Noir was probably one of my very first introductions to to the concept uh, of noir. Oh, and then Robert Altman gets to uh, to cap off his career. Uh, I mean, he bounced around between every genre, but certainly Long Goodbye is and hallmarks of of seventies. Oh, yeah, so the player, absolutely the player. Uh, there. So yeah, no, he's got his hand, and then he gets to to wrap up the program. Which Kevin Klein, perfect guy noir. Yeah, Kevin Klein, someone who some someone who would would have fit so seamlessly into into classic noir. This could just be a Kevin Klein uh, appreciation podcast. It could be. I'd be all about that. <laughs> uh, Calvin and Hobbes also was probably another big early pastiche because uh-huh. he had oh what was it? he had a detective alter ego too, where it was you know deep shadows and he'd go around with his dart gun and his mom would be the femme fatale would come in with a job for him. It'd be like, do you know who, who ate the cookies? She said, uh, you know, his, his inner narration. And then it reveals, of course, Calvin's eating the, the cookies. This is a great <laughs> thing to discuss on a podcast, but uh, this visual comic that I'm describing to you, but uh, uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I think uh, again, just going to the pastiche as like the ultimate reduction of the core signifiers of the genre uh, so yeah, we've got black and white and shadows, the detective, the femme fatale. Uh, we got on here crime. Yeah, 
Um, Somebody's done something wrong. I I definitely think it. uh, So so much of it is uh, is is coming from protagonist, uh, hero or antihero, dreaming of a better life, trying Mm -hmm. to improve their trying to improve their lot in life. That is their mission. And they do they get in over their head? Do they reach too far? Uh, What um, what happens from there? Usually usually goes poorly. But it so often it stems from trying to get ahead in a world that is keeping them down for sure uh no i think that that makes a lot of sense you know let's see what else we got some class conflict uh which was definitely we were I, we were both just reading a um uh, this article from the jacobin that was about this i, I at least that's why it's on top of my mind i know you may have already put on yeah, there before I, that no, that's the, that, uh, I, same same here yeah yeah um that was discussing how the the, the classic noir era was one of the ways around the haste code to really delve into people left behind by the system as we were talking about earlier and looking at the failings of the American dream. And uh, I think that's definitely the failings of the American dream is, is something that is stayed through, right? Cause then it, and then it goes back to the idea of rot, right? Like that, that underneath it all, something's gone wrong and it's not going to be pleasant finding out about it, but it's also necessary. You know, it just used to be that in these code days, you, you wind up with a kind of a forced happy ending, which I think we'll talk about with uh, our Nightmare Alley episode, uh, a little preview of what's to come. But if you look at the comparing the original adaptation from 47 and the recent Guillermo del Toro 2021 adaptation, I think that's one of the big differences we'll, we'll be getting into is, is the impact of the Hays Code. Um, and the liberties that del Toro gets to take that um, Golding wasn't able to take back in 47. Yeah. And I, uh, that's certainly something that you see in a lot of classic noir where, where different directors have, uh, have different, uh, well, I, I, honestly, it's just, it, it's interest, but it, it, to some extent, I'm sure it's, it's a, a certain deftness with skirting the laws of, mm-hmm. of the, this production code that was the law of the land in Hollywood and some people are able to really push the push to the limits what they're able to do within a film and some don't attempt it and, and you know it's hard to assess how much they're trying to to do something but noir is packed within the innuendo it's packed is absolutely overflowing with <laughs> suggestive talk and uh and and with implications far beyond what's actually being depicted yeah i mean that's probably another great hallmark and or pastiche target is the like rapid fire innuendo banter you know let's play a little clip from uh double indemnity which i think is one of the the great examples of it we should tell me what's engraved on that anklet just my name as for instance tell us tell us i think i like that but you're not sure i have to drive it around the block a couple of times Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket? Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Oh, that's such a good example of that. The verbal wit on display is astounding. That's something that I think does get carried over. Uh, and most neo-noir certainly pull, um, try to pull in the banter to, to help 
carry through a film, but uh, but it, it's it, there's something about the uh, having to work under the restrictions of the Hayes Code that that almost forced more creativity out. So it's hard to replicate exactly what you had. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's sort of a, a slavishness to sometimes to recreating that that feel. But you know, I think something else that's important to remember is that noirs were contemporary films, right? That they were largely representing the current moment or the very recent past. And so from the vantage point of 60 to 80 years later, it feels like dated slang and kind of cliched and and all that. Uh, Our context for it is so different that when you evoke it, I think there's an instinct to kind of, again, recreate like the that way of speaking but then that's not how like if you're starting noir fresh today under the same constraints the equivalent of that innuendo and banter would have completely different slang that you would be drawing from the internet you wouldn't be drawing from like you know prohibition era america right um brick is a a great example i was just thinking brick yeah that's adapted that um, it's it's smart it is it's very aware of the the genre proceeding you can't i don't think you can properly appreciate brick without without having some context of the genre that it's infatuated with but um but it is a a very successful modernization of the genre 100 percent. like it verges on pastiche but then it manages to keep everything like it has such a strong sense of its own reality that every single choice is in alignment with each other where the sling is updated for mid 2000s California high school and but just a little old fashioned but not so much to throw you because it is a heightened world and all of the you know like the police commissioner is now the vice principal and uh, the detective is the outsider and all that it's just beautiful I can't wait to talk about Rick. it is one of my favorites yeah and i've i've watched brick in um in ages so i'll be excited i know that's one of your favorites and i will be excited to revisit that one alongside you well i think it's also just so fascinating because it is going back to this kind of issues i think it's a good counterpoint of defending the genre right because it is evoking a lot of the tropes but it's also spinning them in ways that move outside of those tropes but it is still so very clearly a neo-noir, right? So like it has the detective character, but he's not a detective. And like there is a femme fatale, but she's uh, a theater nerd. And like, it's very stylized visually, but it is not a black and white indebted to German expressionism film at all. And so I I think it is a great way to demonstrate the elasticity of the genre uh, and I think it just goes back to that, uh, our, our old favorite uh, Supreme Court quote, I know it when I see it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. sometimes it, it's not what it checks off on the list, but it's just sort of saying like, this has got it. I, well, it, and, and I feel it. Here's an interesting thing we're going to encounter as we move forward with this. And, and as we as we move through some neo-noir entries, there are cases like Brick um, or e- even like Lebowski that are noir films at their core. They are telling a noir story um, and they may take on different genre trappings along with it, but it's it's a noir film in plotting uh, and what you're going to take away is, is not so fundamentally different from what you might take away from a classic of the genre. But then there's a whole slew of other 
other films we're going to encounter that are intimately aware of noir, but are refashioning it in a totally different way where the narrative itself isn't, isn't taking the same beats, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't owe heavy influence mm -hmm. uh, to it. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of one of my very favorite films, Chunking Express, which is a, is a fragmented narrative, um, the, the first half of which is, I would say, uh, obsessed with noir, among other things, but certainly has got, um, has, it's got law enforcement on the mind, it's got the passage of time on its mind. It, it's a, a weird film that exists uh, in, a, in a strange pocket of time and space with, uh, with the changeover um, from British to Chinese autonomy in Hong Kong, starting its 50-year like, path to uh, autonomy. And so it's something that, that is forming noir into its own weird, beautiful thing. And I think it's a great segue to our, our last little bit here, which is just sort of pitching you on uh, you are our faithful listeners, what this show is going to look like, because it's not just going to be us uh, waxing rhapsodically about the genre itself for indefinitely. So we're going to try to organize things by topics of interest uh, and group them together and explore how they evolve over time. You know, some sort of basic things we've been looking at uh, as organizing principles are looking at, say, the detective character and how that has changed from the 40s to today, or the femme fatale, how that's evolved um, you know, one that I'm particularly excited about is uh, uh, boxing. I think boxers have been such a fascinating part of the noir and the noir movement. And uh, I'm excited just, again, to see, like, how that's, that's changed over time. How about you, Tristan? Are there any specific themes we've kind of discussed that you're really excited about? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, very interested in exploring this kind of concept uh, of out of the past. And, uh, and of course, it's uh, there's a, a, a very important classic noir of that same name that with the excellent Robert Mitchum and get so much uh, Robert Mitchum. I can't wait. There's going to be a lot of Robert Mitchum. And, and honestly, that could take us, it, it could take us up to one of the few noir Western hybrids of dead man, which, oh, sure. uh, which I think is a great nineties entry from Jarmusch. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly anything that involves an obsession with uh, the past, trying to escape your own or confront your own. Um, I think is, uh, it's something that we'll see a little bit in, um, in our, our nightmare alley talk to come up too. Yes. And that's a great, uh, our, our next episode, <laughs> I have very loud screaming baby in my background, folks. Uh, but uh, yeah, our next episode, our, our kickoff official episode is going to be a double bill for Nightmare Alley. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be looking at the 1947 and the 2021 adaptations and how they both engage with noir and, uh, you know, going back to our earlier talk about how there are core tenants, but they aren't always present you know the we don't we have a femme fatale but we don't really have a detective you know one is in beautiful black and white and one is not it's gonna be an interesting conversation i think um so yeah so sometimes we're gonna do these sort of standalone episodes too um either when there's a new release that we really want to talk about um and and are, are excited to dig into or when yeah, something else we've been talking about doing is uh, since we've got this massive list of movies which um i've only seen about 400 out of the 2000 plus and i think we figured out you were about the same tristan yeah probably about that uh actually i think it was less than 400 i think you were closer to 400 anyway we've only seen a fraction of the overall scope of that list so i think in between these seasons we'll either pick some that we haven't seen or maybe just randomly draw from the list and and just 
go exploring and you know sometimes we might find some real winners and sometimes we might not yes uh and and i look forward to to both versions of it i i can't wait i can't wait to jump around a bit uh and and see what noir looks like in the yakuza films like you yes. mentioned in um in anime in black exploitation in um in bollywood mm, uh, mm-hmm. i i just picked up a uh, an anthology of of Tamil pulp fiction I've been reading and uh and I think like there's there's still there's room for actually Bollywood and and noir do kind of mesh well together oh, there's definitely some uh like some Indian Southeast Asian entries in our list that I had not heard of before uh and I, I, I totally agree with you I think it's really exciting to you know, I, I'm more familiar and certainly not exhaustive, but I am more familiar with sort of the classic Japanese noir and the more modern South Korean noir. Uh, but that is just a small fraction. And so I've started dipping my toe into, you know, Chinese noir with like a touch of sin and ash is the whitest color um, and have loved what I've experienced so far. But again, like, uh, you know, this is this podcast at the end of the day is an excuse for the two of us to watch some movies that either we love or haven't seen yet, and then get to talk about them. And hopefully some people out there listen and, and get something out of it too. But uh, that alone is, is worth it in my book. Likewise, uh, this is going to be a fun ride. And, uh, and Fred, it's good to be along on it along with you, uh, but also with all of you listeners. Uh, thanks for listening to us. <laughs> Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>